So in these blue zones, when we talk about their nutrition, um, it's probably not playing that much of a role in their overall health. So one of the biggest factors when it comes to living to 100, and this is what these blue zones are, people who tend to have higher rates of living to 100, one of the biggest factors of that is genetics, like the biggest factor. About 20 to 40% of living to these extremely old ages is determined strictly by genetics. This is probably as impactful as almost everything you can do with your lifestyle. Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez. And in this episode, we are going to be doing a special Q&A episode. This is going to be the first of most likely many of the Q&A episodes that I'm going to be publishing on this podcast. So I thought it was a good idea. I've been doing Q&As on my Instagram for quite some time. I've answered the same questions over and over and over again. But I always get positive feedback from those Q&As. Everyone asks me to save uh, the answers that I make to those questions. And uh, there's always positive feedback around the way that I answer those questions. So I thought it would be beneficial and it would actually save the answers that I, I make to these questions. And I'd be able to provide more nuance by just addressing some of those questions here on the podcast. So that is what I'm going to do today. We have five questions. I will probably be pulling five questions every couple of weeks from my Instagram Q&A. So if you're not following me there, go check me out at Instagram at Dr. Adrian Chavez, DR period, Adrian period Chavez. Uh, that's probably where I put out the most content and I highly recommend checking my page out there. But I will post another of these question boxes into my stories at some point and we'll address some of those questions here. So what we're going to discuss today, we got five topics. So number one is going to be blue zones. Uh, there's a popular documentary about blue zones and living to 100 that I want to discuss. I've been getting a lot of questions about. Number two is what are some tips or simple tip for choosing higher quality carbohydrates? Number three, what do I think about the term food is medicine? It's a good one. Uh, number four is high LDO with low triglycerides okay so this is something and i'll get into a bit of detail about this but the high ldl low triglycerides or or high hdl low triglycerides is that is that okay are you not at risk for cardiovascular disease i'll give it i'll get into more detail about what that actually means when we get to that question and then the last one do artificial colors cause adhd or contribute to adhd so let me go ahead and address these. I'm going to try to get through them quick, but also provide a little bit of detail. I'm not going to go into too much detail of the specific science, just kind of give you my overall opinion, experience on these topics, and hopefully help you to understand uh, these a little bit better. So first one, Blue Zone. So there is a documentary. This was There was a book that was published quite a while ago by a guy named by the name of Dan Butner, I believe is how you pronounce his name. It was called Blue Zones. It was a, like the secrets to living long, and they just published a documentary. So that's why I've been getting asked a lot of questions about it. They just published a documentary. It's called Blue Zones, The Secrets to Living to 100 or something along those lines. And this uh, book and documentary are about a five different populations that tend to live longer than other parts of the world. So there's 
five unique populations. There's one in Costa Rica, there's one in Japan, there's one in Greece, there's one in uh, California, and then I'm forgetting where the other one is off the top of my head right now, but there's five different populations. They live longer lives than the average people around them. And so this guy, Dan Butner, studied them for quite some time and was interested in how they live their lives because you know, in his, the way that he claims, it's unlocking the secrets of longevity. So this is an interesting book. I read this quite a while ago. I'm surprised to see the documentary come out now. This book's been out for quite some time. It, it's good stuff. So I thought the documentary was kind of interesting. I mean, it's going to be, many people are going to watch this and feel like it's very eye-opening in terms of, you know, contributors to health. I think that it was really good that they focused on family and social support and access to healthcare and time out in nature and meditation and all these other factors that, that do play a role in health. So they weren't, it wasn't like the normal documentary or Netflix documentary that includes information about nutrition where they're typically just dialing in on nutrition and making this seem like all of your health relies on, you know, being very diligent about everything that you eat. This documentary was more focused on health from a holistic standpoint. It really highlighted some of the things that these people do that are much different than what how the U.S. population lives. I thought it was interesting from that standpoint, maybe a good thing to watch from that standpoint. When it comes to nutrition, so in these blue zones, when we talk about their nutrition, um, it's probably not playing that much of a role in their overall health. So one of the biggest factors when it comes to living to 100, and this is what these blue zones are, people who tend to have higher rates of living to 100, one of the biggest factors of that is genetics, like the biggest factor. About 20 to 40% of living to these extremely old ages is determined strictly by genetics. This is probably as impactful as almost everything you can do with your lifestyle. We all know these stories and we've seen these stories. You may know someone of this individual who lived to 106 and smoke and drink all the time. That's because genetics play a very strong role in extreme longevity. I personally have multiple people on my mom's side of the family who have lived past 100 and they're not doing anything special. There would be no value of studying their lives. And one of the things that this documentary fails to mention or fails to highlight is the extremely powerful role that genetics plays and that genetics is likely playing in these specific populations. So these populations are tend to be genetically very similar to one another and, and have specific genetics that are probably different than those around them. And there's a clustering of longer lifespans due to genetics. And so what we're seeing is there's, there's just families that live in these areas that probably have clusterings of longer longer lifespans, and these families are marrying other families, and this is a largely genetically driven process. So when we look at the blue zones and we're thinking about their lifestyles, we also have to take into account that these people probably have genetics that uh, are different than others that allow them to live these longer lifespans. The other piece of it is nutrition does play a role. And as they highlighted, you know, there's many factors that play a role. But in this documentary, they they made a big deal about quote unquote superfoods like purple, you know, Japanese potatoes or something like that. And then the green tea. And they, and they were in each of these populations, they singled out like a couple of different foods and and made those seem like they were largely or had a large part 
of a role in these individuals' longevity. The reality is that they probably played a mineral role, if any. Like the green tea consumption probably increased lifespan very little. It's not these superfoods that are driving these outcomes. It's the fact that these people have unique genetics. They live in beautiful locations where they have access to nature. They spend a lot of time outside. They spend a lot of time moving. They often live in very close-knit communities. They often live close to their families. They often have a good work-life balance, a good sense of purpose. And it's not the Japanese sweet potatoes or the purple sweet potatoes or the the green tea that's that's allowing them to have these outcomes that are different than the rest of the world. And so that's one that one thing that I didn't like and I don't like about this specific philosophy is they try to then turn around and say that the diet that these people eat or the dietary patterns these people have are responsible for their outcomes. And yes, some of the things that they do, they eat very plant-based diet. They eat, you know, wide variety of different fruits and vegetables and natural foods and very little processed foods. Yes. Those nutritional habits are going to be beneficial for health. Um, But trying to look at this population and say what they eat is the way that we should eat is incorrect. That's not that's not how we should be looking at this documentary. That's not how we should be looking at these populations. Yes, there's some patterns there. Great. But we have plenty of data. We have plenty of observational data. We have randomized control trials. We have all sorts of data that allow us to make decisions about nutrition and health and to make conclusions about nutrition and health. And that's the type of stuff that you're hearing me talk about on this podcast because I've read a lot of that data and I'm breaking down that data and helping you to kind of understand and make conclusions around that. Um, The blue zones is one piece of data and not a strong one at that. And so basing all of our nutrition choices and creating a diet around one piece of data that's not a very strong piece of data, it's just not the way to go. So my, my thought process on this is it's a Netflix nutrition documentary like You shouldn't be taking advice from Netflix nutrition documentaries if you want high-quality nutrition advice. It's interesting. It's cool to see the profile of the way that these people live and how it's kind of different than how we live. But just understand that their outcomes are not because of what they eat. Their outcomes are due to various other factors, and trying to eat like they do isn't going to cause you to have the same outcomes that they do. Okay. Next question. Someone asked me about how to choose higher quality carbohydrates. I get asked this question because I've discussed it uh, on my social media a few times and I haven't gone into too much detail about it, um, but I'll discuss it here. So when you're choosing carbohydrates that are packaged, so like bagels, pasta, um, bread, anything like that, when you're making choices about packaged carbohydrate, you know, processed carbohydrates, because these are going to be processed foods when they come in a package. And there's nothing wrong with these things, but you have to choose the high quality sources of processed carbohydrates because it's okay to eat carbohydrates that have been processed, but there's a big difference between consuming a whole wheat pasta that has eight grams of fiber per serving versus consuming, you know, potato chip. It's a processed potato that's been fried. Big difference between those two foods. Those are both processed carbohydrate sources. Big difference. Okay. So when choosing processed carbohydrates, breads, pastas, things like that, my recommendation is to turn around the back, look at the label, 
look at the amount of carbohydrates and look at the amount of fiber. If you put a zero at the end of the amount of fiber, so say there's three grams of fiber, 22 grams of carbs. If you put a zero at the end of the fiber and that's more than the carbohydrates, then that's probably a, a higher quality source of carbohydrates. So that's going to mean that for every uh, one gram of fiber or for every 10 grams of carbs, you have at least one gram of fiber. That's the general rule. And so a simple way to do that is just put a zero at the end of the fiber. So for every 10 grams of carbs, you have at least one gram of fiber. So if it's 50 grams of carbs, you want at least five grams of fiber. So the easy way to do that, look at the label, put a zero at the end of the fiber. If it's higher than the carbohydrate amount, then that's a higher fiber source of carbohydrates, probably less processed, probably a little bit more beneficial than something that's going to fall under that threshold. So really simple thing, if you went into the grocery store and made your choices about, you know, breads and pastas and things like that, just based on this specific rule, it would help you make much better decisions around those things. So I recommend that. And I think that's a good question and a good tip for those of you who may be confused about, you know, what to choose in the bread aisle or what to choose in, you know, the pasta aisle. Just turn it around, look at the fiber content, compare that to carbs, at least one gram of fiber for every 10 carbohydrates. Number three. What do I think about the term food as medicine? This is an interesting one. I used to uh, be one of those people who would say that food is medicine quite often. Like when I first got into nutrition, um, I was way on that side of thinking nutrition could solve everything and food was the ultimate medicine for everything. Um, I was extremely naive. Uh, I had just had my own experience that, that I was able to really improve my digestive symptoms uh, with food and I started watching documentaries and things. Speaking of documentaries, I started watching documentaries um, and things like that during that time and truly got convinced that like food could cure cancer and could cure autoimmune diseases and all of this. It can't. And that's the issue that I have with using this term is like food is medicine because oftentimes this is being used by people who are making claims about food that are just not possible. And the reason that people do that is because it's good marketing. If I can claim that I can cure your autoimmune disease, if I can claim that I can cure your cancer, if I can claim that I can cure your hormone imbalance, your Hashimoto's, or your whatever the case may be, if I claim that I can cure that, people are going to be more interested in what I have to say. So that's just, it's just that simple. So there's people all over social media, all over podcasts and all, you know, putting ads out on social media and elsewhere and, and even off of social media on the radio in person, you know, they're, they're everywhere, people everywhere claiming that they can cure autoimmune disease and cure anything with nutrition. And uh, this is where that term becomes problematic because food can be a form of medicine. So food, if you're eating quality nutrition, that can actually help to prevent disease. It can reverse disease. Like if you're, if you have type two diabetes and you dramatically change your nutrition, you can reverse your type two diabetes. And this can be the case with other conditions as well. It's definitely possible to, use food as a therapeutic modality that helps to improve health conditions and you know you can reduce blood pressure improve cholesterol reverse diabetes you can improve hormone status for many in many cases with just improving nutrition um, so food is in my opinion a a form of medicine but using that term food is medicine and not being more nuanced about that, I think it can be problematic because most people who are saying that are making claims about nutrition that are just beyond what nutrition can do. Nutrition can potentially help with a variety of conditions, but 
when people are claiming that it cures cancer, cures autoimmune disease, and these other things, it's just a huge red flag and it's happening all over the place. And it's often happening by people who are saying food is medicine and they just, they're naive. Oftentimes it's people who have never worked with people and have never seen the fact that nutrition doesn't cure everything. And unfortunately it doesn't, I wish it did. I love nutrition. I love talking about it. I think it's really important for health. It is really important for health. It's one of the most important factors that we have control over when it comes to our health, but it's just not a magic pill. And there's many, many health conditions where nutrition may not even play, you know, plays little to no role or minor role in actually helping to improve that. And some people will get on the internet and tell you that nutrition can cure that condition, unfortunately. So just be aware of that. Um, but, you know, that term... I don't like it for that reason. Next, is it okay to have a high LDL cholesterol if your triglycerides are low? This is a um, claim that is made by proponents of high fat diets and like the keto, keto carnivore proponents. And they claim that LDL cholesterol is not an issue as long as triglycerides are low. This makes no sense. Like this makes no sense. When we have high amounts of LDL cholesterol, some of those cholesterol particles will get into our artery walls, they can get oxidized, and they can contribute to the development of a plaque. The more you have, the more likely it is for that to happen. It's like if there's more cars on the road, there's a higher likelihood of an accident. And that's what's happening in our blood. We're putting more cars on the road when we have higher LDL cholesterol. Doesn't matter what triglycerides are. I don't understand this idea that a risk factor isn't a risk factor. It's a known independent risk factor. This is What this means is LDL cholesterol in and of itself, when it's elevated, will increase risk of heart disease. This is well established. And these carnivore individuals came out and said, it's not a problem if triglycerides are low because a high fat diet is going to keep fasting triglycerides low. And so when people go to a higher fat diet, their LDL goes up, their fasting triglycerides go low. So what these individuals from the low-carb communities decided to say was, oh, LDL is only a problem if triglycerides are high. And this isn't the case. Like, there's no data to support this. They, they are just making that claim because they want people to follow their diet and not worry about it. LDL cholesterol is an independent risk factor for heart disease. If you have a high LDL cholesterol... You might you definitely want to talk to your doctor, definitely want to consider dietary change and potentially medication to ensure that your LDL cholesterol is not elevated throughout the course of your lifetime. It's not going to be a problem if it's elevated for a short period of time. But like I said, it's, you're putting more cars on the road. You put more cars on the road for a longer period of time. There's more likelihood for accidents. And that's what's happening when we're increasing our LDL cholesterol. And again, this is it, it, it's not the only risk factor for heart disease. This is, also, this is something I want to mention too. Because a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, there's people that have low LDL cholesterol that get heart disease. Yes, of course, there's other risk factors for heart disease. Blood pressure, triglycerides, LDL cholesterol, there's other risk factors for heart disease. Um, but LDL cholesterol is one of them. And you wouldn't say, hey, ignore blood pressure because LDL cholesterol is low. This, this is the same justification. We're not going to ignore any independent risk factor for heart disease just because another one is okay. And these carnivore individuals are truly going to cause people to have heart attacks. I've seen it where in, in these high fat Facebook groups and these carnivore Facebook groups, there's individuals who are having heart attacks at young ages 
because they're following these dietary patterns for five, six, seven years and having LDL cholesterol 500 for that period of time. It's definitely not something you want to just ignore. And you definitely want to, don't want to be taking advice from these people who are telling you that and from these people in these carnivore and low-carb communities who will just say whatever in order to continue to prop up their promotion of their particular diet. There's no particular diet that everyone needs to follow. Anyone who's promoting that type of advice and saying that everyone needs to be on a Mediterranean or carnivore or keto or whatever type of diet that they're eating is, you know, that's bad advice right off the bat. Last one. This is an interesting one. I get a lot of questions about this. This is actually a topic that is not fully established at this point. So do artificial colors, do they contribute to ADHD? And the answer to that is probably not overall. So there isn't any good data that reliably and consistently links artificial colors to ADHD symptoms. There have been a couple of small trials, like small studies that have some methodological flaws, like meaning they weren't carried out in the most effective way that suggest that there may be some kids who are prone to having behavioral symptoms that occur after exposure to uh, artificial colors. Now, this is, again, this is a very small amount of data. This is where some of the fear-mongering comes from, and it's just not a very clear relationship at this point. Now, like I said, there, there have been a few small studies that have shown um, some potential impact on behavior, but there have been other studies that have shown no impact. And it's just difficult at this point to determine whether or not these things are actually having an impact on behavior. Now, one thing I will say along with that is it's probably best to minimize the consumption of these types of artificial colors, not because they are, you know, any exposure is going to be harmful, but because these aren't often put into high quality foods. So if you're eating a lot of artificial colors, you're probably eating a lot of foods that have been heavily processed, probably added sugar, added fat, and other factors that probably make that food a little bit less nutritious. So I would be more concerned with overall dietary quality, focus on you know, avoiding the types of foods that would contain artificial colors, like eating lots of Cheetos or lots of fruit snacks and things like that that contain Gatorade and other things like that that contain lots of artificial coloring. It's probably best not to do that, but also having exposure to some of these artificial colors, it's probably not going to have any impact on behavior for most kids. Based on the data that we have, most kids are going to have no response to it. There's a probability that some kids may have a negative response in terms of behavior specifically individuals who have a propensity towards behavioral issues, individuals with ADHD may possibly experience some behavioral changes when exposed to these colors. And so again, my best advice is to limit them overall. And then if you find that when your child is exposed to them, they experience some type of behavioral issues, then then you'll know. Um, but if, you're, if your kids are eating them all, all the time, it's going to be really difficult to tell. So if you're kind of limiting them overall and they're not eating those things on a regular basis, it's most likely not going to be a big deal at all. And then if you find that when they do get exposed to these things, let's say, for example, they're 
at a birthday party or something and you see that they get exposed to them and they're having more behavioral issues and you know that may be something that you may want to suspect but then in that case it could also be that birthday party comes along with other stuff so a lot of parents are concerned about these things but oftentimes these artificial colors are probably not an issue it's just the other things that people tend to be eating when they're eating these because you're having highly processed foods like i said added sugars added fats things like that and that can probably be driving some of these behavioral issues or just being out of a routine things like that so yeah as i mentioned we don't have clear data on this there's a possibility that some kids specifically kids with ADHD, may experience negative behavioral consequences from consuming these things, but that's not even clear at this point. I wouldn't be overly concerned about your kids being exposed to any amount of this. Like if they're having small quantities, let's say, for example, you give your kid a bag of chips with lunch, it's probably not a big deal. And I definitely wouldn't worry about that at all. There's other things to worry about. Worry about the overall dietary quality if your kid's eating an overall diet that is providing nutritious foods and you know the amount of exposure to these artificial colors isn't that high because they're eating a nutritious diet that isn't including a lot of these foods, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay, so that is the end of this Q&A episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. So quick recap, Blue Zones, um, there's a little bit of interesting information there, but don't model your dietary patterns after the information included on that documentary or book. Uh, number two, how to choose higher quality carbohydrates. Try to choose carbohydrates with at least one gram of fiber per 10 grams of carbs. And number three, what do I think about food as medicine? I mean, I think there's some truth to it, but it's also overused and over-exaggerated. And some people will claim that food is cures everything, which is just not the case. Uh, number four is high LDL and low triglycerides okay. High LDL is never something that is going to be okay. You always want to pay attention to high LDL cholesterol and not just allow yourself to have high LDL cholesterol because someone told you it was okay. And number five, do artificial colors contribute to ADHD? Um, the answer is we don't particularly know. It's probably unlikely that most people are having any response to it. Some specific subgroups of children who may have a negative response in terms of behavior to these artificial colors. And, but again, this research isn't very clear. So I hope this episode was helpful. If you found it interesting, Go over to my Instagram, leave me a uh, comment and let me know, send me a DM. I'd be interested to know if these episodes are helpful, interesting, if you guys like these, um, if I should do more of these, love to know it. So thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I hope you all have a great week and we will talk soon. <music>